0: Elisha, succeeded the prophet Elijah, you know, and of course he was a servant of God moving about over the country doing the will of God. The prophets of that day were not too different from the prophets of our day, our preachers in other words. The prophets of that day went about over the country declaring the word of God, of God. When people needed to be chastised and rebuked and when nations needed to be rebuked, they did that. When people needed encouragement, when people needed to be strengthened, they did that. The only difference between them and us is they had God's Word given to them directly. We have God's Word given to us through his blessed book, the Bible. And that's not too different when you come to think of it. In fact, to the business, I think ours is the better way. Everybody can read what we've taught and see whether or not we are actually repeating what God said or not. The point with all the contenders of the faith is that they must give it just as God gave it to them, are there to be blamed and cursed in that final day. So Elisha was one of these men who went about over the country uh, working for God. He had received his lessons from Elijah, as I've said. Now, Elisha himself had some sort of prophet school. I don't really know all the particulars of it. That doesn't matter. But over at Gilgal, he had a prophet school. And there he went down and taught from time to time. Now, it seems that after he had made some trips around over the country, he had healed the widow's son, you know, and had finally come back to Gilgal in Second Kings 2 and 1 and other places. We find where he had... Uh, took up school, as we say. The students were all in their places. But there was a death in the land. Don't forget that, the Bible takes pains to say. Now, that simply meant that food would be scarce and circumstances would be very poor and very, very discouraging, no doubt. So I doubt everybody had enough food, really, to eat. Now, this school of prophets, I suppose, was affected by this particular famine as much as anybody else. And I just suspect that these students were sitting there today before their teacher, hungry. Evidently, that must have been the case. or it was getting on up toward noon one, probably just wishing noon had soon come. A bunch of students really likes to have noon come around, and they like to eat usually. But it seems like that there was not too much to eat back in the pantry, back in the uh, uh, kitchen department. And I suppose uh, uh, the uh, servant of the prophet had charge of this particular detail, and since there was nothing to eat, one of the students, or rather a servant, went out into the field to see what he could find. Looking here and there, he couldn't find any vegetables. He didn't run upon any turnip greens. He didn't find any peas or oakery, anything like that growing around. But he did find something. He found... uh, Uh, something that he thought was edible, and he gathered it up. Probably a city boy down there taking lessons in the theological school, and you can't expect them to have too much of a knowledge of agricultural affairs. So then we find that uh, he gathered these things. Come to find out they were gourds, a lap full of them, the Bible says. He took them in. But they were wild gourds, and he shred them into the pottage pot. Because the prophet had said to some of them, Go set on the great pot and see pottage. Well, they had to have a little bit to eat, and it looked like it might have been a little skimpy, so they're going to do some, some uh, maybe this is pottage helper, I don't know. But anyway, they're going to put something in there that was going to stretch it a little bit and give them a little bit of extra. But lo and behold, the Bible says, these were wild goers. Now, this student didn't know much, as I say, about gardening, so he just got these things and cut them up in the pot and uh, stewed it, and they cooked and cooked, and after a while it was time to eat, and so the bell rang or the whistle blew or he tapped the table or whatever. It was time for dinner, and they all sat in their places, and so he began to come in with the great pot and began to uh, pass out pottage to everybody. Here they came with their plates and their bowls and they all began to get some pottage and then they all went over and sat down and began to eat. Now I'm not going to tell you all the effects of this particular gourd because I, I, I'm a little too indelegate. I'm a little too delicate to do that and uh, some of these things would be a little indelicate, so I'm not going to express them to you. But one of the uh Uh, Side effects of this gourd was they were extremely bitter and you could know you had something bad when you took a taste of it because it was extremely bitter and while they were eating all of a sudden these boys just realized we've got something on our hands here that we better take care of and they cried out oh thou man of god there's death in the pot there's death in the pot and he said well just take it easy and he went in there and put meal in it, the Bible says. Now, I don't know what healing effect meal has on it. Maybe it diluted some of the bitterness and maybe some of the poison and the other effects, but, of course, we believe there was a miracle wrought in the thing anyway, and they saved the pottage. They saved the food, and everybody seemed to eat and have just a plenty that day. You know, I think there's a lesson in that. It may seem a little humorous to us in some places, but I think there's a lesson in this sermon and I'm going to mention it to you tonight. There's a dearth in the land today, a famine in the land, a famine of uh, not food and water. But Amos says in Amos 8 and 11, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord God, that I will send a famine in the land, not a famine of bread, nor thirst for water, but of hearing the word of the Lord. Now, ladies and gentlemen, if that time hasn't come, I dread to see it come. I believe there's a famine in the land today of hearing the word of the Lord. Now we've got lots of preaching going on today, probably more than has ever been in all the history of the world, probably more than people can ever remember. We've got more Bible schools with preachers going to Bible schools. We've got more ministers here and there across the land. We've got more universities, but we've got less of the truth than probably we've ever had. I said less of the truth because men are not taking the truth today. There's a lot of preaching going on, but not the word of the Lord. There's a doctrines and commandments being preached today, and it's damning the souls of men. It's poison, and it's poisonous to the people. In 2 Timothy 4, 1 and 4, the apostle Paul said to people of our day, I charge thee therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall judge the quick and the dead at his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word, be instant in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and doctrine, for the time will come, here it is, when they will not endure sound doctrine, but after their own lust shall they heap to themselves teachers having itching ears, and they shall turn away their ears from the truth, and shall be turned unto fables. So I state to you there's a famine in the land today of hearing the word of the Lord. As as I say, there's lots of preaching going on, lots of religion, but a famine of really hearing the truth. Well, you know, there's a famine of a lot of things going on today besides this. We uh, find that there's a famine of morality in the world today, too. If a person of 50 years ago could come back to this world and view the society of our day, they would certainly have a shock, I will tell you. The dress, the conduct, The morals of this generation would absolutely uh, overwhelm the people. The looseness of morals in our day is absolutely appalling. We have adultery, fornication, all types of sin, all kinds of wickedness. We've always had that. Somebody might say, well, fellow, what are you so stirred up about? We've always had that. Yes, we've always had that, but it's different today. One time a fellow down in Wichita Falls, Texas, asked me, hey he said, what do you think about the church today and the church the way it used to be? How does it compare with you? And I said, well, I'll give you a little comparison about it. We've always had problems. Now let's just take women's hair for instance now. Just for instance. Women have always cut their hair. We preached against it. The Bible teaches against it. We know it's wrong, but sisters have always done it. But the difference in then and now is, back under years ago when sisters did it, they knew they were doing wrong, and most of them would admit they were doing it wrong. But today they do it and try to justify it. Today they do it and try to tell you it's all right, and go to the Bible and try to prove it to you. And not only that, some preacher will come along in the church of Christ, and some one cup ones at that and we'll go to trying to tell you that it's all right to do that. Back yonder, people have always gone around dressing scantily, but people disapproved of it in olden days. Wearing men's clothes, women wearing men's clothes, and men wearing women's clothes, and the likes. That's always been. But back there, people frowned upon it. But today, it's approved, and it's applauded even. I tell you, there's a famine in the land of morality. Like I was talking to one of the brothers before church. We've never had a day just like we've got today in our lives, in the lifetime of our ancestors. Now, there's been a time in the history of the world as bad as we've got it today. Back yonder in olden times, in Bible times, it was just as bad, maybe even worse. If you'll read some of these situations described here in the Bible... But in our our days and in our scope, it's never been this bad before. For instance, people have always uh, committed immoralities. But people didn't approve of it. They approve of it now. People always committed various things. The government even sanctions it. The government allows it. We've got people today killing babies by the millions. That's murder, downright pure murder. And the government approves of it in many instances. The government justifies it and even legalizes it. No, there's never been a time just like we've got today. There's a famine in the land of morality, and you can be assured of it. Matthew 19 and 9, the Bible says, Whosoever shall put away his wife except it be for fornication, and shall marry another, committeth adultery. And whoso marrieth her which is put away, committeth adultery. That's plain Bible. Now, there's no way of ifing and panning around that. That's Bible. But we have that winked at today. We have people trying to justify that today. We have people trying to explain it away today. But there's no way of getting around it. And of course divorce and adultery and fornication is so apparent today and so prevalent today till you're almost a fool to start crying out against it. There's a famine of honesty today. In other days a man's word was his bond. Sometimes men would shake hands on a situation but sometimes they didn't even have to do that. If a man told you something, he didn't have to be such so so piously religious. It was just plain honesty back in those days. If a man told you something, you could depend on that. Now, there had to be some kind of very, very great circumstances that made that even vary or change. But today, honesty is scarce. And there's a famine in the land for pure, simple plain honesty today. Over in the Bible, we read such passages as Proverbs 23 and 23 that says, buy the truth and sell it not. It is such a valuable thing to be a truthful person till you accept it, you grasp it, you get it at all cost, and you never, never let that go. Just plain out, old-fashioned, simple honesty that nobody has to explain nor define. Everybody knows what that is. We're taught that from our youth up by our godly parents. But in the world today, you have to watch it real close. And sometimes people get such a desire and a love for filthy lucre and for advantages and privileges today and accumulations today till they start tipping the scales in their favor. They start adding a little bit on here and there in their favor. You know, I I read what old uh, Dr. Adam Clark, the Methodist commentator, said about that in Colossians when he said lie not one to another. I just turned over there and read and it's almost amusing the way the old gentleman writes about it back under in the year 18 and 14 but it's not any different. Listen to what he says. Do not deceive each other. Speak the truth in all your dealings. Do not say my goods are so and so. When you know them to be otherwise, do not undervalue the goods of your neighbor when your convenience, when your conscience rather, tells you that you are not speaking the truth. It is not, it is not, it is not, says the buyer. But afterwards, he boasted. He underrates his neighbor's property till he gets it. Does that ring a bell? I believe that rings a bell in 19 and 97. I believe it's just about as true today as it was in 18 and 14. I hear brethren sit around sometimes and they don't realize this, but they'll sit around and laugh and boast over how they pulled a good deal over on somebody else when it was pure dishonesty right at the bottom of it. There's death in that. There's a famine in the land. Well, Yes, I say there's a famine in the land, a famine of all these things. In other days, like I said, it was some different. But you know, I want to go on with our story. Like the prophets of all men of this day are shredding into the doctrine pot the poisonous gourds of error and evil and are drawing out this hell broth to fill the bellies, spiritual bellies of people today. You know, we've got to check today to see uh, what the truth is. We've got to make certain that we are not imbibing this soul-damning food because all religious food must be tried. And we're in our own rights when we try the teaching that's being given to us from the pulpit. We've been told to do that. Because it's so damning, and there's death in it, spiritual death, much more severe than physical death. I want you to note what Job says in 34 and 3. He says, For the ear trieth words as the mouth tasteth meat. Jesus said, Believe not every spirit, but try the spirits, whether they be of God. Now, this is how we're going to taste test our food today that comes out of the doctrine pot, we're going to try it with our ear instead of tasting it with our mouth. The prophets back there had to taste it physically. We hear it today, and that's the way we taste it. That's the way we know. That's how we know whether it's the truth or not because Jesus has warned us to try every spirit and make certain that they be of God. Matthew 5 and 6 says, Blessed are they that do hunger and thirst after righteousness. Oh, yes for they shall be filled. We want the food. We need the food. We want the truth out of the truth pot, out of the doctrine pot, so to speak. But we want it to be the truth and not something that's poisonous, not something that's bad, not something that's going to uh, be uh, so damning to us in the great by and by. Well, there are things to be dipped out of the death pot tonight, and uh, we need to be very careful about them. But some of these things we would note. Any way will do is one dip of pottage that people are being fed on today. Any way will do. Can't anybody in the world see that that's an effort of the devil to circumvent the teaching of God's word? Jesus has told us in no uncertain terms that we must obey his commandments. Now that word obey is the forgotten word of this generation. The word obey, if you were to check out the English language and of all the words you may find, the word obey is the forgotten word of our times. The parents don't make the children obey like they ought to in many respects. Teachers can't make their students obey. The law officers have a hard time making people obey and and, uh, respect the law. And people won't obey God, they never have. The old song says so beautifully, but we never can prove the delight of his love until all on the altar we lay. For the favor he shows and the grace he bestows are for all who will trust and obey. You know, that's the third stanza of that song. I wish sometimes people would leave out the second stanza and, re- and lead the third. As I sometimes say, I'd rather be anything but the third stanza of a four stanza song of course, I don't have to say that here, I don't think, and in a few more places. But i tell you right now, obedience is the forgotten word of our generation. But we must obey, and Jesus tells us, why call ye me Lord, Lord, and do not the things which I say? Jesus said, blessed are they that do, or rather the apostle says, blessed are they that do his commandments, that they may have right to the tree of life, and may enter in through the gates into the city. Jesus said, Whosoever heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them, him are I like unto a wise man that builds his house upon the rock. And the rains come and the floods uh, descend and the winds blow and beat upon it and the falls not, for it's founded upon the rock. That's a, that's a description of a man obeying the Lord. That's what is put there for. It's not the building code for the carpenters, but it's to show you the importance of obeying the Lord. Now, the devil knows that. And if the devil can circumvent that and get people to understand that they don't have to do what God says, he's got them in spiritual death. So he's ladling out to us today the doctrine of this particular pottage that we have. This is a very accepted pottage The world is feeding on to its own destruction. Death and death only can be the spiritual end of it. It makes a difference. You know it makes a difference in society, what you do. It makes a great difference in the field of mathematics, in the answer that you get, and it makes a difference in religion too. The Bible says there is a way that seemeth right unto a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. Now, we don't want to be going along by just what seems right and what might appear right. We wouldn't do that about a deed to our property. We wouldn't do that about some valuable papers or some possessions of ours. We would get the best lawyer we know. We would have him to dig into that and check into that and find out its legality and know that it's absolutely bona fide before we would even put our money and make an investment in it. But people will blindly go along today and let folks dip out all kinds of doctrines and they'll just gulp it down as if, a, as if it matters not at all. Well, another thing that matters, men are rather the doctrines and commandments of men. Now, I say that man would have done everything different from the way that God did it if he had been making this plan. I say if man had been making our plan of salvation, he would have done everything different from the way it is in this book right here. I say that because you try and do it anyway. You tell me one thing that man hasn't tried to change. Jesus has taught us that the doctrines and commandments of men are dangerous and they're so damning. Now Jesus, or rather Isaiah the prophet said, My thoughts are not your thoughts, saith the Lord, neither are my ways your ways. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. And if you think it makes no difference, you go over and have a talk with Cain. You talk to, to Brother Cain about his problem. He'll tell you it made a difference. Now, God had arranged for man to offer up sacrifices to him. Now, I know this was done because over in the Hebrew letter, the writer says, By faith, Abel offered unto God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain. Now, faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of the Lord. So I know that his information about doing that sacrifice correctly came from a message from the Lord. It's not recorded in this book as to when it came, but it came. And if you want to know what my conjecture is about it, I believe that it came when they were put out of the Garden of Eden. The first thing that was ever killed in this world was an animal, and they used the coats to make, the skin rather, to make coats. I don't think they threw that animal away. I think that animal was offered up as a sacrifice. I don't think God, God would have just gone out and killed an animal just to get the skin off of it, to make Adam a coat. I don't believe that. I believe there's the first sacrifice then somewhere these boys were taught the right way. Now, I know they were or else he couldn't have offered it by faith. You don't offer a thing by faith unless it comes from God. So he offered it by faith. Cain did not offer it by faith, and Cain was cursed. That's what the record tells us in God's blessed book. In Ephesians 3 and 4, how that by revelations he made known unto me this mystery as I wrote afore in few words whereby when you read you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ. Now I read that to show you that we can understand. We can understand. I talk to people all the time and people say, you know, I just can't understand the Bible. They'll get some... Uh, mystery novel and sit down there and figure it out before they even get to the end of it or or, or you can't watch a program on TV but what they'll go to try and tell you the end of it before you get to it they're pretty sharp but when it comes to the Bible they can't understand anything they claim Paul says you can and Paul said I wrote it down in a few words whereby when you read it you'll understand this mystery that's come down I believe people can understand it I know they can understand it if I can understand it I know they can well, Colossians two and eight says, "Beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit after the rudiments of the world, and not after Christ." Colossians two twenty and twenty one says, "Wherefore, if ye be dead with Christ from the rudiments of the world, why as though living in the world are ye subject to ordinances?" Listen now back to our analogy of tasting food here, back to our picture, back to our parallel. Touch not. But taste not, he said, handle not, which perish with their using after the doctrines, commandments of men. Don't taste it if it's wrong. He not only says don't imbibe it, just don't taste it. Just don't have anything to do with it. You know, I have a, believe I have as great a respect for great men as the next one. And if I hadn't been warned in God's Word to follow men, I'd have been one of the biggest followers of great men that ever walked because I admire great men. I like to read about them. I like to read their biographies. I read biographies all the time. They teach you a lot of things. But you know that can go only so far. Paul said, Be ye followers together of me, even as I also am of Christ. 1 Corinthians 11 and 1. Paul didn't expect anybody to follow him when he wasn't following Christ. And I don't care how pious your preacher is, It doesn't matter to me how educated he is or how renowned he is. When that man stops following Christ, you are treading on dangerous ground if you follow him still. And that's what we're taught. No wonder then Jeremiah the prophet said, O Lord, I know the way of man is not in himself, for it is not, not in man that walketh to direct his steps. We want to notice now some of the commandments of men. I say this because they cannot be found. Some of the commandments of men because they can't be found in the teachings of God's blessed and holy word. And these are things that come out of the doctrine pot of the devil if we're not very careful. Conscience as a true guide. Sometimes people still today are mixed up on this business of conscience. People talk to me, well, you know, I just believe if you follow your conscience, you can't follow your conscience. The apostle Paul followed his conscience and he was wrong. He said, Men and brethren, I have lived in all good conscience before God unto this day. And he was killing people. He was persecuting the church of God at that time. But when he saw he was wrong, he would change. Now, I don't blame anybody for being wrong till they know they're wrong. You can't blame anybody for being wrong till they learn the truth. Maybe that the wrong is on us for not teaching them. But I do blame people when they see the truth and won't accept it. People are not real honest. They're not honest with God. They're not honest with themselves. When they see the truth and they see they're wrong and they won't make a change. Would you make a change tonight if you knew you were wrong about something? Sometimes we're just as stubborn as any people because sometimes we're wrong on some things. But I believe we're just as stubborn sometimes as other people. Paul said, I've already thought within myself that I ought to do many things contrary to the name of Jesus. Procrastination is another thing that the devil is dipping out of a doctrine pot and fooling the men, men of this day with. Paul says in Hebrews 3 and 15, Today, if you will hear his voice, harden not your hearts. We're taught to not procrastinate, defer things, and put them off. Not to do that, but we're taught to do it today while we have the opportunity. James 4 and 13 says, Go to now ye that say today or tomorrow we will go into such a city and continue there a year and buy and sell and get gain. For what is your life? It is even a vapor that appeareth for a little time and then vanisheth away. So our breath is in God's hand. You're reading the book of Daniel. That's what old Daniel told that king when he stood before him. O king, I'm serving God in whose hand your breath is. Our breath is in the hand of God. It's not in our hand. We can't say how long we're going to live. We can't say what we're going to do. James says it's a good thing just to say if the Lord wills. If the Lord wills, because we don't know. You've never been told anywhere in the Bible to put off anything till tomorrow. But you've been told to do it today. That's what we've been told to do. Night cometh when no man can work, said Jesus Christ when he was warning the people about immediately being about their duties, accomplishing their work. Do it now, because night cometh when no man can work. When our labors must cease, we must be prepared before night because of the darkness of death. Darkness is always a symbol of that that's wrong, that that's bad, that that's that's, uh, sad, that's discouraging, that that's evil that that's wicked, damnation. I take a chill sometimes when I read the account of the uh, Last Supper and when we're told in there that Judas made that final dip in the pot and Jesus turned and looked at him and said, said to him, that that thou doest do quickly. And he arose from there, walked out that door, shut the door behind him and the record says this with such brevity but with such power, and it was night. That just chills you right down to your spine. And it was night. This we certainly agree that there's something very, very uh, uh, interesting about that. You know, that was so interesting to me till uh, I noted what some of the commentators said about it. Mr. Meyer said, this conclusion... Or rather, this conclusion of the narrative respecting Judas presents unsought something full of horror and which precisely in the most simple and simple brevity of expression takes profoundest hold of the imagination. Feel the weird force of it. This is your hour and the power of darkness. Alford says, I feel with Myers that there is something awful in this termination. We know it was just speaking about the physical darkness outside. But there wasn't only physical darkness that was flooding over the heart of that man when he walked out and closed the light of that room out of his eyes. He also closed the light of eternal life out of his heart. And so does everyone else when they dash aside the offers of Jesus Christ from day to day, and from time to time. We should all be very, very careful and not let the devil deceive us by giving us a cup of this pottage and telling us, you're all right. Wait till tomorrow. Wait till next week. Wait till the next revival comes along. Then you can obey the gospel. That's all right for you to do that. We need to have Jesus with us when the night comes. And the night's coming, ladies and gentlemen, whoever you are, whoever you be. It will be night, and we're going to need him with us. Over there in the narrative concerning the resurrection of Jesus when these two disciples were walking toward uh, Emmaus, you know how Jesus journeyed along with them, and they walked along this way. The way didn't seem quite so long. The hills didn't seem quite so high and the valley so deep as long as Jesus was walking with them, and pretty soon they realized they had reached their home. The Bible said Jesus made as though he would go on. Jesus, as I've said earlier, is a gentleman, he never imposes himself upon anyone. You've got to ask him. He made as though he would go on. But they looked, and they said, Abide with us. Now, the reason they said this was because the day had ended. The sun was setting in the west, and they had to face another night without Jesus because they didn't know who this man was. But they knew one thing. He came the nearest to filling their hearts since Jesus had gone. Than anybody they'd ever met yet. But their eyes were holding and they didn't know him. Abide with us. For it is toward evening. And the night is at hand. And the Bible says he went in to abide with them. Well, the evening's going to come for you and me one of these days. The end of the road's going to be reached. We're going to get down to the end of the trail. And the sun of life is going to set for us. And we're going to need somebody. You can't cross that river by yourself. That's one of the things you can't do in life. You're going to have to have a helper there. Nobody else can go with you. The trail through death is a narrow, narrow trail. You make it single file, ladies and gentlemen. But there's only one that can go with you, and that's Jesus Christ. And you must take him when that time comes. We're living in a day when people are disregarding holy things, as I've said. They're legalizing all kinds of immorality, but they're disregarding holy things. The home is not being regarded today as it used to be. The home is not held up and protected. There's so much that's lashing out against the home today. The Lord's day is not protected like it used to be. I know we're living in a commercialized age, and it looks like that we just have to have... Uh, the things that we have, but I can remember the time when the horses grazed the pasture land on Sunday. Tractor sat in the shed. No furrow was turned on Sunday. And you want to know why we didn't get our guns and go down in the woods and shoot squirrels? You know why we didn't get our fish hook and go to the creek? If you want a reason for it, we didn't have any better reason than that it was Sunday. And in our home, that day was respected and honored. And Christian people sometimes defile the day just as much as anybody else. Like I said, I know we're living in a time when it looks like that we just can't bring ourselves down to give it all the respect that's due it. our working systems and so on. But the day is not what it used to be in the hearts of many people. People don't regard the Bible like they used to today. It's a joke book to many people. People's parents are not honored today like they used to be. There's a scripture that says, Honor thy father and thy mother that thy days may be long upon the earth. There's death in the pot when children disobey their parents, when children dishonor their parents, when children treat their parents as old fogies, there's a breakdown in God's plan and God's system when that's the case and all the people I know who are worth a snap of my finger are the people who have always loved and honored their parents and even let it be known. They were thankful for it. And people who don't do that regardless of how religious they are, there's nothing to them. The Bible says that even Jesus, when he was at the age of 12, went down and was subject unto his parents. That means in our southern way of talking, he minded them. He minded them. That's what he did. He was respectful to them. People, great people, have always been people who honored and respected their families, their parents, their home. I'm tempted to tell the story of President McKinley. In 1879, President McKinley, mother was sick down at the old home in Canton, Ohio. I was in Canton a few years ago. Held a meeting there. He was in Washington, and she became very ill, and he came down. He sat by her bedside as long as he possibly could. She was very old. He was very fond of his mother. In earlier days, the people could watch from their doors and see that... 54-year-old president and his aged mother walking down the broad streets of Canton, Ohio with her on his arm going to the church on the corner where they had always met. But now she's very critical. Affairs of State forced him away from her bedside and reluctantly he pulled himself away and went back to Washington. He ordered everybody to put the presidential train. They didn't have jet they didn't have Air Force Two then. Put the presidential train under a full head of steam, and it sat there all the time waiting. And he ordered a phone to be put from her room to his office, a straight line. Finally, one morning, the word came, Mr. President, we think you'd better call him. He jumped, he wired back and said, Tell Mother, I'll be there. He jumped on that presidential train, went crashing down through the country, and got there a half hour before she died. He took that little form in his arms and held her there till the undertakers had to tell him, Mr. President, we'll have to take her now. That doesn't diminish my feelings for President McKinley. I don't know anything about his politics, and I don't care anything about his politics. But when I see his name now in a book or anything, I always remember what a great man he was down in Cincinnati the next morning, the Fillmore Brothers, who were great songwriters, sat down at their desk and wrote the little song that you all, old people remember, tell mother, I'll be there. And that was the story of it. That's how it ended. In conclusion, this evening, ladies and gentlemen, are you sure of what you're feeding upon spiritually? Are you sure tonight that what you're feeding upon spiritually is the truth? Jesus said, you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. And until you've obeyed the truth, you will never be free. Am I talking to somebody who's never obeyed the gospel? Jesus, in the truth, has commanded that you believe on him as the Son of God, that you repent of your sins, you confess your faith in him, and you submit to the waters of baptism for the remission of your sins. If you've done that and somewhere down the line you've grown cold and indifferent to the Lord's cause, you can come back home. He's made that provision for you. By repenting of your sins, confessing your sins, and praying God for forgiveness, he will welcome the prodigals back home. He's calling the prodigals tonight from all over the land. And this could be a great night for somebody who's not in touch with the Lord like they ought to be. Come tonight while we stand and while we sing.